0: Learn Persian with Chai Conversation, Growing Up Iruni interview with Firuze Dumas, author of Funny and Farsi. Salam Behamegi, this is Leila Shams, host of Trying and Conversation. I'm so excited to share with you today my interview with Firuze Dumas, author of Funny and Farsi. Funny and Farsi came out when I was in college, and it's almost hard to remember what a huge, huge deal it was at the time. Really, before that, we had zero mainstream representations of Iranian-Americans. The one thing we had that we could all point to was Not Without My Daughter, and that was a horrifying depiction of what Iran and Iranians were. But then Fujazi came out with her book, which is a delightful, funny, heartwarming memoir of what it's like to grow up with an Iranian background in the US. She touches on what it was like during the hostage crisis when Iranians were constantly negatively stereotyped in the media, but she also looks at the really lovely, positive things that came from being an immigrant in this country. Iranians are often not allowed the levity of talking about their experiences in a way that, say, Greek people are in a movie like *My Big Fat Greek Wedding*. That movie was allowed to be funny and light and silly, and in a similar way, this book is the same and really humanized Iranian Americans both for a Western audience and for Iranians. Anyhow, it's now twenty years since the book came out, and so much has changed since then. It was such a delight and joy to be able to talk to Firuze about the context in which she wrote the book and how things are different now, and what being Iranian meant to her then, what it means now. And I really enjoyed this interview and hope you will as well. And without any further ado, here's Fido Zeduma. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me, Leila.
0: This is the 20th anniversary of your book, Funny and Farsi. And I want to say a little bit about my experience with this book. So I was in college at the time. I started college in 2001. So this book came out and, you know, I I go to school or I went to school at um, the University of Texas. So we have a big, um, you know, Middle East program here. So I took some classes in the Persian language and stuff. And when this book came out, it was a huge, huge deal for us all. It was the first book that, you know, was a mainstream breakthrough book about the Persian language. So first of all, thank you for doing that. It was such a big thing for us to to finally see ourselves represented in this delightful book. So I really appreciate that you wrote this. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for your kind words. I really
0: appreciate it. And I think, yeah, back then, if you told me I'd be talking to you 20 years later, I would just be <laughs> blown away. But let's talk about a little bit about the context in which the book was written. So this was right after 9-11. When did the idea for the book first come up? When did you start? Was it after 9-11 or it had been... Started before then?
1: So, actually, I'd started the book uh, before 9 11 because I wanted my children to know my stories. And I had grown up in America, well, my family moved here in 1972. And we never knew another Iranian. There were no Iranians in our town. I was always the only Iranian at my school. And it wasn't until after the revolution that Iranians came to America. So, I was here like when it was virgin territory when, you know, you'd say, I remember we'd say we're from Iran and, you know, we were in Whittier, California and people would just say, where is that? And we'd say, well, it's right between Iraq and Afghanistan. And they'd say, where's that? And we'd say, you know, it's like right uh, south of the Caspian Sea where that really famous caviar comes from. And they'd say, what's caviar? And you know, that like fish egg conversation is always a dead end. So literally we would just say, well, you know, where like Russia and Japan are, like we're just in the neighborhood. So and then after the revolution and after the taking of the American hostages in the embassy in Tehran, all of a sudden I was from this country where everybody hated us, you know, and there were t-shirts and bumper stickers everywhere that said, Iranians go home. We play cowboys in Iran. It was just t- a terrible experience. And ultimately, that is why I became a writer, because I had never seen myself in a book or a film or a TV series. And I just wanted my kids to know my version of my life which was one that had joy, that had lots of humor. And, you know, that's why I wrote Funny and Farsi, because it didn't exist. And I initially, it was only for my children. It was only after September 11th that a friend of mine said, you should try to get it published.
0: Wow. Okay, so it was directly related to September 11th. Oh, 100%. Okay. Well, one question that I have just growing up to... um, it you know, the book itself doesn't have a lot of it, there's a lot of experiences, universal teenage experiences of yeah, being called names and and you know, the body hair and silly things that happen. Um, but did you were you faced with like blatant racism at that point when you would say that you're from Iran?
1: So here's the thing. Um I fully assimilated into the American culture. I mean, I was the one where, you know, my in fact my my relatives would joke and they're like, you know, like Suzanne is like fully American. And so when the revolution happened...
0: Well, you said Julie,
1: right? Well, well, my Iranian family always called me Fusey. They thought the American name thing was ridiculous. Of course, then they all later changed their names and added an American name. But, you know, when you're the first, you always get ridiculed. <laughs> um, so by the time the revolution happened and the American hostages were taken, I was in a community that knew me as Julie. Um. Most, of, my, of course, my friends knew I was Iranian. It was never something that I, that I hid. But what was interesting was a lot of people didn't know because I didn't speak with an accent. And so I would hear things about how they felt about Iranian. You know, they didn't censor themselves around me because they didn't know I was Iranian. And it was very uncomfortable because I realized that based on what people were watching on the news, they now hated an entire country. And that to me was baffling. Like that phenomenon was baffling that so many people cannot distinguish between what politicians do and what the people of a country do.
0: Right. So then when they would find out that you were Iranian and when you would talk about it with that kind of... Uh...
1: Well, awkward. I mean, it was always awkward. And, and I would always say, well, you know, I, I'm Iranian. And, and the, I, the response I always got was, no, you're not. And then I would always say to them, why would I pretend to be Iranian? You realize it's the most, you know, unpopular country in the world right now. And they go, oh, yeah, no, that's true. That's true. So and then and then they said, well, well, we don't mean you. We don't mean you. And I think, you know, but it's still it, it hurts. It doesn't matter that I'm like, you know, the exception to their racism. I don't want the racism.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. So then when you were growing up, what was it like in your house? Like, did you all have a very Iranian household? Did you still speak Farsi or how, how was it in the house?
1: We always spoke Farsi in the house. We always spoke Persian. That's the correct name for it. We always spoke Persian in the house. And partially that was because um, my my mother didn't really speak English that well. and But also because we didn't, my parents didn't want me to, to forget Persian. But our house actually inside of it, the one part that was very, very Iranian was the fact that we had no snacks. Like, you know, nobody ever wanted to come to my house after school because like our selection included pickling cucumbers, like all you can eat and limes. You know, <laughs> would you like a half a lime with salt on it? Cause that was like a treat I, I loved growing up. I still love that treat, by the way. We never had like cookies or chips or anything. And if you looked in our pantry, like there was a lot of things like raw lentils, of course, rice, spices, but no Oreo cookies. There was never. That's so funny.
0: There's these things that, like, right now that's blowing my mind because there's these things where you grow up in an Iranian household, you don't realize that it's strange until someone points it out. I have never even made that connection. I also never had snacks. And now I have kids and I, you know, we rarely have snacks in our house even. It, like, takes a lot for me to, like, buy chips. And I guess that's why. It's kind of like the spoon thing, you know? I didn't know until I married an American husband when he was, like, we are not having soup. Like, you don't have to put a spoon out for every meal that we have. <laughs> you know, it's these things that you just take for granted. So, snacks, I hadn't even thought about.
1: You're right. One thing I have to remind the listeners when we moved to America, there were no Persian stores. You could not go and get, like, Limu Amoni when you ran out. You had to wait for a visitor from Iran. And then, when they were coming and they would say, What do you need? And we'd give a grocery list. You know, that's how we'd get, like, the Zirishk and you know, like the, the Zafarin and all the ingredients. So we didn't have a very Iranian household because there wasn't, there weren't all the ingredients you needed. I, mean, I am amazed now, like if you go to Southern California, there are strip malls now where all the signs are in Persian. Like they're not even bothering to put them in English. And it was not like that in 19, in the, in the early 70s. It was, we just had to go and make do with what we had. And there was a lot of substitutions and We ate a lot of Kentucky Fried Chicken. We loved Kentucky Fried Chicken. And my parents, neither of them, have ever been particularly nationalistic when it comes to food or or tradition. They were always like, oh, let's go, you know, there's a date festival in India? Let's go check that out. They were, they wanted to experience the American life. So, yeah, my home was not particularly Iranian except in its lack of certain things.
0: (laughs) Right, right. But you did celebrate the, the, like, Noruz and... The holidays.
1: We did the best we could, but we were literally the only ones because, again, like imagine celebrating, you know, like Christmas and you are the only one in your entire city doing that. So it was, I we, we did the best we could, but it was very awkward and it, and it, you know, nobody else was celebrating. So it was like on a Tuesday at like 10 a.m. So like I was at school anyway, you know, my dad was at work. It didn't at all feel like no was at all. It felt really forced and kind of sad. And at that time, now, this is this is really going to take people back. But, you know, there were, of course, no mobile phones. And calling Iran was really expensive. I mean, I don't remember how much it was per minute, but it was it was expensive. And so like my my mom always wanted to call her sisters and, and you know, they would cry. And it was so expensive. And my dad would be like, can you cry before the phone call? Because, you know, it's costing a lot. <laughs> So it just, it was always like a weird no you know, it was, you know, we were aware of like the phone bill that was going to come.
0: <laughs> right, right. But what about, I, I? you'd mentioned in the book that all the family kind of moved into the same place and you'd see a lot of family. Is that right? So then when they came over.
1: Yes. Post-revolution, we did what all immigrants do, which is you go where you have a single relative, wherever on the planet that might be. So all of a sudden my father's family all joined us in Southern California. And then And interestingly enough, like that was my first exposure to Iranian culture in America was through just my own relatives, because there was nowhere else to go. Again, this was before there was Iranian television or anything on the radio or so it was just my relatives. And so basically, what we all did was we just constantly ate, we just get together and eat.
0: And then at that point, were y'all were y'all celebrating more like Noru's and things like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, no, because at that point, like, there were, you know, you you need, like, a certain minimum number of people, like, to have a party. And so, yeah, by, so once my relatives came, then, you know, no dudes and all that picked up. But, like, by then, I was also getting ready to go to college.
0: Right, right. So, so yeah, let's fast forward a little bit. So, we get to, in 2003, when this book comes out, you'd married a French man, and so you were in that, you weren't in, like, an Iranian household. So, at that point, what was your, um, kind of, what was your interaction with Iranian culture? Did you have more Iranian friends or you were still pretty isolated?
1: Well, funny and Farsi brought a lot of wonderful Iranians into my life. That has been really wonderful. That, that aspect of the book, because I am that, you know, I'm a real half and half person. I am really an Iranian American. And in certain ways, I'm very Iranian. In certain ways, I'm very American. So funny and Farsi actually exposed me to so much more Iranian culture. So I was sharing my story, but I had so many Iranians sharing their stories. And that was, that was a really unexpected gift. Actually, to be honest, everybody shares their stories after Funny and Farsi. It's not just Iranians. And that, that has been a huge gift in my life. I mean, I I have heard in the past 20 years, I must have heard like, I don't know, like 10,000 stories. People tell me stories. They email me stories. It's been a huge connection for me to like, to humanity.
0: Right. Yeah. I loved reading it. I I felt like it was a manual for my family because actually my family is also from the oil company and they also, they were in Ahvaz. And a lot of the stories that you wrote in here were exactly the stories that they say of of like the going to the club and, you know, the pool and the movies that they would play and everything. So it really, it brought up a lot of conversation for me with my family as well. I remember.
1: What was really interesting um, with Funny in the Farsi, like Iranians will tell me like, well, how is it that non-Iranians find this book funny? Why? And, and then I say, well, because it's, it's universal. Like families are families. Like we all have a mom who worries about us. I think maybe Iranian moms worry a little bit more. We all have a weird uncle. So it is, it is entirely universal to have the human experience. And people are always surprised. Like, I mean, I have, my readers are literally from around the globe. And I even, I, on two, on two occasions, I went to, um, Gallaudet University, which is a university for deaf students in Washington, D.C. And, you know, it was so moving because every one of them wanted to tell me their story through a sign language interpreter. And, and they were all saying like, gosh, your family's just like my family, except for, you know, it's a slight different detail. So I think it goes back to what I've always said, which is our common anecdote commonalities far outweigh our differences.
0: But were you surprised by how successful the book was? Were you
1: expecting it to, to, to do as well as it did? You know, I, I thought it was going to do okay. What has surprised me, though, was how emotional people have gotten, about, have, are still about that book. I mean, I have people who hug me and they cry and they say, that book changed my life because it gave me the courage to do what I wanted to do. I've had so many Iranians tell me like they decided to become artists or chefs or things that are non-traditional because they're like they read the book and then they were like, well, I'm going to be out of the box. So I apologize to their parents (laughs) because they're probably going to be doctors and lawyers and now they're like a chef somewhere. Uh, But I love I mean, hey, and being a chef, by the way, is fantastic. Going in the arts is fantastic.
0: Did your parents ever put that pressure on you? Were they ever like I mean, your father's an engineer. Was he ever like you need to go to engineering?
1: Well, I started out as pre-med at UC Berkeley and soon discovered that the reason I got such good grades in my high school was because I didn't have a very academic high school. And so, I mean, when you take like a physics or chemistry course at UC Berkeley, you realize like there are some really smart people in the world in the sciences and I was not one of them. <laughs> so, um, but also what I realized was when I was in college, I had, I had a big sort of crisis because I wanted to study what was interesting to me. Not necessarily something that was going to lead to a job. And this was really radical. I felt enormously guilty for that. Enormously guilty. And my father, God bless him, always the enlightened person in my life, said to me, just graduate. You know, that diploma is a golden key. Just graduate. So I then studied um, history and history of art and literature. And I wrote a thesis on the influence of 18th century French art on 19th century Persian art. And I mean, did that lead to a job? No, but has it led to really interesting cocktail conversations? Yes. And it also gave me, you know, being able to study what I loved just ignited my passion in life for doing things that I love because it felt really good. Now, do I recommend people to be a humanities major? I do, however, please don't make the mistake that I made. Also take, like, courses in, like, tax and finance and things like that because I did not have a very balanced education, and that was my fault. My, I remember my brother, Fashid, was constantly telling me, like, take business courses. You need to be balanced, and I did not listen to him. So this is a public confession to my brother, Fashid, that he was right. <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> I'm sure he'll appreciate that, but I will also second that I wanted to study humanities only and my mom who is an accountant and hates accounting and loves the arts said okay study humanities but also become an architect that way you'll have a professional degree and you can do humanities which is what i did and now i'm a full-time uh, podcaster
1: slash well you know it's interesting cuz i got i got divorced last year and this year i was doing my taxes by myself for the first time in my life because i was with my ex since i was 20 years old and and I just realized there's so much I don't know in the world of taxes and I was really embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. And I kept Googling things and I was asking people questions and finally I called my accountant and I said, look, I want to make an hour long appointment with you because I want to ask you a series of really stupid questions. So I did. I went and I said, I should know all these things by now. Um, and I asked them oh, an hour's worth of really stupid questions and it was great. And I just wanted to say I've already done my taxes, and it's whatever the date is. Um, they were done like a month ago,
0: <laughs> March twenty ninth. I have not even started uh, finally, an extension. But, but going back to so two thousand three, so your kids were young. I'm uh, part of this series. It started up or it started off as a series called Raising Nimrunis, um, out of me selfishly wanting to learn how people raise half Iranian kids, since I'm also married to a non Iranian. Um, how they raised them, uh, being interested in the Persian language. So yeah, what was your experience with that? Did you? I read that. I read your really delightful conversation with Khalil Gibran at the end of the book um, about how you're not really pressuring your kids to learn Persian. But yeah, can you tell me what exactly you did and how what they're what point they're at right now? How old are they
1: now, by the way? My kids are 30, 27, and 16, which is a whole another conversation. And they have the same father, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Uh, people always ask they're like same father yes when i became a mother i i didn't want to force anything on my kids in terms of um language or culture or anything because i don't think you could force anything on your kids especially when only one parent is iranian i felt like that's like a lot of energy to put into something that kids are probably going to resist anyway and like my i have a brother uh who, who's who's married to an iranian and their three kids speak fluent Persian, even though they were born here. And it's beautiful. Uh, it's really hard when only one spouse is Persian. So my first child actually spoke it fluently because with her, I was able to like maintain, you know, I'm only speaking Persian. When the second one came along, by then I was like, eh, a little bit more. But she actually went and like kind of learned quite a bit on her own when we were in Southern California for three years. And then my third one, by then, no. So she, and and I, and, and the sad thing is, I think she regrets it, you know? Uh, she's the one who probably really would have wanted the lesson. So, um, so I got it all wrong. That's really what I'm trying to say here. Um, yeah, I, I got it all wrong. I mean, they're, they're, they're very decent human beings, all, all three of them. And I'm really proud of who they are in this world. And wh- wh- whatever languages they end up learning or not learning, you know, that, that's on them.
0: Salam HaMegi, a quick word from Leila here. I want to talk to you about our program, Learn Persian with Chayan Conversation. Chayan Conversation is the most comprehensive resource available to learn the Persian language. If you've been interested in speaking conversational Persian, reading and writing in the Persian language, or even in Persian poetry, we have you covered. You can listen to all of our lessons for free on this very podcast. Just scroll through the list on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check out our website to see all the language resources we have available at chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. We look forward to you joining us on your language learning journey. Now, back to the interview. Then what would you recommend if you feel like you did it wrong? How would you recommend, like for me, I have a six, four, and five-month-old.
1: And your husband is American. As
0: American. Yeah. So so one of the things is no one I interviewed has been able to keep their kids speaking the Persian language. I'll put that out there, except for the Italian person that I interviewed in Europe. It's a lot easier because they really put a uh, emphasis on a second language in the U.S. They do not. And then another person that I interviewed, um, she does the uh, what is it? Opal method, which is one person, one language. And But, you know, I ask these people who have managed to do it, whose uh, spouses can't speak the language. I say, well, what's the dinner table like? And they go, oh, it's utter chaos. I'm just speaking to my kids in one language, speaking to the husband in one language, and they're speaking a language, and none of us talk to each other, and it's really unpleasant, which is not what I want, you know? <laughs> like, I want pleasant dinners. So so what is your recommendation?
1: My recommendation is now there are so many, like, um, videos and like there's a lot of persian stuff for kids. So I would just slide that stuff in there and have them sort of organically learn by watching and and listening. Here's what I think is really more important than your kids speaking a language. I think what's more important is that for them to be open to people from other cultures. That I think is really important because I know like some people Want their children to speak a particular language, and it's like national pride and, and all that, and, and which is which is fine. But I think it's really important to raise children who are good and kind, not just towards people that speak the same language as them, but anybody who's different from them. But to have that that respect, whether it's someone from another culture, someone you know, like from the LGBTQ community, or um, someone different skin color, different religion, that's what I try to emphasize. As a mom, not so much that they learn my native language. Now, I wish I had I wish I had been better at teaching them my native language. Like I said, I failed. But I did succeed in in them being very kind and decent human beings.
0: Wonderful. And what is their relationship like with your parents?
1: Well, my mom is not doing well. Oh, I'm sorry. There isn't much, you know, you can't really have a relationship with her. And my father is almost 97. Wow. And uh, very, very much love. Very much loved and he of course adores his grandkids. I mean this is he just you know, they're the world to him.
0: Right. Wonderful. That's that's good you Ninety seven, that's amazing.
1: Well my aunt sedira who everybody knows from Funny and Farsi, just celebrated her one hundredth birthday. I mean, rock on.
0: Wow. miam. yeah, definitely. Okay, so then now now we're, t- flash forward 20, 20 years, it's 2023, and this came out in 2003. And the past few months have obviously been very eventful in, in Iranian history, and and a lot has been going on. So I'm just wondering, what has been your interaction with what's been going on since Masa Amni's death? What's been going on in your world?
1: Well, first of all, let me say I am in awe of the courage and the bravery of the Iranian women in Iran. They are infinitely more courageous than I am, and I have nothing but respect and truly awe for what they're doing, and I support them 100%. I wrote a piece for the New York Times about my feelings, and I only hope that what's happening now leads to a country where people have basic freedoms, freedom of speech, the freedom to be who they wanna be, because you cannot live without hope and that is what this government has taken away is people grow up without hope they can't be who they want to be they can't do what they want to do they can't wear what they want to wear and that is that that's inhumane that is not sustainable so i hope i hope that someday there is a free iran and i will be the first to travel there
0: well, can I ask, have you have you traveled there in the past? How, how long has it been?
1: I have not been there since the summer before the revolution. Unfortunately, um, part of being a successful writer in Iran, because my books are very popular in Iran, I'm actually much more popular in Iran than in America. Um, my translator was jailed twice. Uh, I cannot go back to Iran, unfortunately. Um, I would it would probably end up being a one-way ticket for no reason. You know, people say to me, like, Americans say, why? You know, have you written about politics? No, but... Just being a popular Iranian-American writer is very suspicious. At different times, I've gotten harassed by the government. And I remember at one point getting an email and someone saying, well, you're speaking at all these conferences. Well, we know the government is organizing them. And I'm like, I'm speaking for like librarians and English teachers. Like, You think the government is organizing this? But there's just so much suspicion. And the fact that an Iranian-American woman would succeed as a humorist for some reason, instead of people seeing it for what it is, it's like, "Well, who's helping her?" Listen, I wish the government were helping me. If the government's listening right now, and you want to help me, I am open to it.
0: Right? And is the translator uh, was that related to being a translator for your books that he was jailed? And how is he now?
1: Unfortunately, yes. Well, he ended up. Yeah, he ended up actually having to leave Iran. I don't know where he is. I no longer. I don't. I don't stay in touch with him on purpose. Because I, and I told him, I said, listen, I don't want to know where you are. Cause I, there was a period when I was constantly being asked about him and I genuinely don't want to know where he is because I want him to be safe and free. And I don't know. I don't, I don't want to know where he is because I don't want to, I don't know what I'm thinking. Maybe someday, like I hit my head and all of a sudden I'm like spilling secrets, but
0: <laughs> wow, that's, that's, that's hard to know that, uh, that that's what led to him being jailed. I'm sorry for that.
1: Well, it was that and also the fact that he had a, a, some kind of a website that linked people together that was, you know, suspicious. But the fact that, I mean, he, he became famous because of being my translator. And that was that was what led to his first arrest.
0: Ah, oh, and it's just like arbitrary. Totally arbitrary. How has your uh, relationship been with Iranians in general, like the past few months, in the past few years? Like how how have things changed with with what's happened? I know that you recently went to the White House, for example.
1: I did. Well, that was amazing. I actually was invited to the White House for their NoRu celebration, which was very moving for me. I actually, when I walked into the White House, my eyes just filled with tears because I was thinking about my father, and I thought, you know what? He would never believe this. Like, not in a million years would he believe that I was in the White House. So, and you know what, this is so bad. Like, I was so moved, and I was so emotional. I didn't even take that many pictures. Like, (laughs) I only have three pictures of (laughs) myself in the White House which is such a boomer thing to do because I was just there like feeling instead of actually taking photos. You know, when I came in 1972, we were constantly explaining to people like where Iran is. Like, no, we don't ride camels. We have cars. Yes, we have electricity. No, we don't live in tents. So, So to go from that to having the White House actually celebrate the Persian New Year, it's like we've come a long way, baby. We have a long way to go. We have a long way to go, but we have come a long way. And I wanted to acknowledge that Because, you know, bridge building is really important. And, you know, some people criticize and they go, yeah, but you know, why did you go when they're not even supporting that? It's like, can we just work on bridge building? And then we can do more.
0: Right, right. And I think, for me, that's been the biggest change. It seems like, like, what you're saying, when you wrote this, it was kind of in isolation, there really wasn't a community of Iranians. And like, you know, everyone was just doing their own thing uh, in their own different cities around the Uni- United States or even around the world. And for me, it feels like all of a sudden, since since, you know, September of 2022, there's been uh, really like Iranians have gotten united, both Iranians out in the diaspora together and Iranians in the diaspora with those in Iran. I feel like there's there's really a lot more unity than there was before. So I don't know if you felt that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Oh, I absolutely feel that way. And you know what's also really great is for the first time since I've lived in America, I love how much media coverage Iranian women are getting. That's a first. I mean, it used to be that you had to like be a mullah with a beard to be, you know, to be on TV. And just the fact that, you know, the cameras are now pointed at women, that, hallelujah, Hallelujah. Because I'm telling you, women lead the way. Women always lead the way. Always lead the way.
0: Thank you again for for having been that leader so many years ago. I, I can't emphasize that enough. It's amazing to be able to talk to you. And-
1: well, listen, what what I did was very easy compared to what the women are doing right now in Iran, like literally risking their lives. I did not risk my life to write this book. I, I sat in my dining room and drank tea and wrote. So <laughs> It was very easy compared to what's happening now.
0: So what is your hope for the Iranian diaspora in the future um, and the Iranian people in the future?
1: Oh, gosh, I have so much hope. First of all, I hope that for the Iranian people, I wish freedom, just freedom, the freedom to be who they want to be, whoever that is. I want them to just be themselves and not have somebody watching over them and say, no, you can't do that. You can't be that. You can't wear that. No. Um, and you know, what breaks my heart is how many messages I've gotten over the years from people who say, can you send me an English version of Funny and Farsi? Because of course, you know, that book is so heavily censored in Iran. I don't even know what book it is anymore. Um, and you know what? That's illegal for me to do. I cannot send about. So, so to ma- imagine living in a country where it's illegal to have a book sent to you. No, this, 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 this must change. This absolutely must change. So for the Iranian people, freedom, freedom, freedom. For the diaspora, what I really wish is two things. I wish that we would elevate in each other um, and realize that the rising tide elevates all the boats. Um, because, you know, I'm going to be really honest with you we are so mean to each other and I've been on the receiving end of the meanness too. So I, it's like, we, we're really good at criticizing each other and like bringing each other down. That does not do anything. That just divides us. And if we are going to be a powerful unified diaspora, that needs to stop. You know, I remember when funny and Farsi came out cause it was first embraced by Americans, not Iranians. And then I would go to events where Iranians would come and they would say. This is not my story. Why you write this a stupid book? This is not my story. And I'd say, I never said it's your story. It's my story. My name is on the book. And you know, it was it just got to the point where, you know, I'd think, oh God, you know, why are Iranians so hard? Like why are they so difficult? And I see this with artists everywhere. So this is my you know, if there if there's any Iranian listening to this podcast, please be kind. Be kind to everybody, but really be kind to fellow Iranians, especially artists. I mean, God bless anybody who does anything outside the box. And listen, the box that we're in is so tiny. Anything you do that's interesting is outside the box. And we are just the first to be like, boy, oh my God, boy. You know, we all know that, that sound.
0: Yes, I love it. I completely agree. And I don't know, I think it's in your next book that you wrote about the, the title funny and Farsi. Oh, my God. I, I want to talk about that, too, because that is the I mean, I just need to have an autoresponder on my podcast even. So it's called Learn Persian with trying conversation. And oh, my goodness, the amount of comments that I get of like, why are you why are you, uh, you know, doing the Western word Persian? That's not our word. It should be Farsi. No, it shouldn't be Farsi. If you want to call it Farsi, go ahead. It's wrong,
1: but it's fine. I don't care don't criticize me. If I had a dollar for every Iranian who took the time to write me a nasty email about the title of my book, I would be on my yacht in the Caribbean right now. I mean, they would write these long emails like, and then what was really hilarious is they would like blame me for, you know, and this is why Americans hate Iran, you know, I'm like, no, this is not why. No, no, that is not why. I love what you put. Can you just look up humorous alliteration, please?
0: (laughs) I should copy that and just put it as my tagline. Can you look up humor? All of my videos, I just want to be like, can you look up humor?
1: (laughs) It just goes back to the comment of like people, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say it. Right. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to add um, and then that we haven't covered so far?
1: So I want to actually thank everybody out there who has given Funny and Farsi as a gift. Um, I, I mean, I hear this all the time. People say, you know, I gave it to my coworkers. I gave it to my dentist. I gave it to my boyfriend, girlfriend. And it means a lot to me because I do believe that the arts connect us. And these stories, first-person stories connect us and they take away the fear of the other. So thank you to all of you who have spread the word Um, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much, Layla, for inviting me to be on your podcast.
0: Thank you. I have one last thing to say, too. You wrote an essay. I was trying to find it. You can tell me where it is about um, when your father was selling a car and the concept of enough. That's the best. I love that essay. I
1: mean, because I love the story.
0: Yes. Where was that? It's in the New York Times. Okay, New York Times. So I'm going to link it in this podcast for everybody to read because for me, having my own business and reading this, it really was a, a life-changing um, reframing for me. It really changed the way I think of things in my business. It's about the concept of of enough, and I think that that's a really important concept for everyone to know.
1: I love that story, and I want to tell you why I wrote that story. Is I moved from Europe, I moved back to Northern California, and I live in a town which is very affluent, but like literally five ten minutes from this affluent area, there are people living in RVs and these are workers who can't afford to rent, but they have to work here. So they live in RVs and I just couldn't, I couldn't digest this. I still can't digest this. So that article came out from that situation and I love that story because I love my dad so much and I love his generous outlook on the world and the fact that he just, he just was never greedy.
0: Absolutely. I'm gonna link that article. I think it's good for everyone to read and just remember what is the concept of enough, what's the concept of generosity and you know, looking out for your fellow, fellow man, mankind. And like you said, you talk a lot about being a citizen of the world. I think all all the concepts you talk about are just so beautiful. And I and I hope everyone goes and revisits this book, reads it, gives it as a gift.
1: Can I add one more thing, Layla? Yeah. Um, I just wanna say that last year on July fourth. I was a clue on Jeopardy. And when people ask me, what's the highlight of your career? The White House is a second. Being a clue on Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it was not a cheapo question. It was an $800 question. And the contestant got it right and won the game. What was the question? It was, Fierce Dumas wrote a memoir in called Funny in This Language. So, so something like that.
0: Amazing. I'm telling you, that was my career peak. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. And uh, and I think we can, you know, in hopes of Zan Ozadi, we can
1: agree. on that. Absolutely. Here's to freedom. Thank you. Yes, here's to freedom.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the interview. You can see the links of the articles we talked about in the show notes for this episode. And if you're interested in learning more about the Iranian culture or the Persian language, check out our website at ChaiAndConversation.com with Chai spelled C-H-A-I. Theme music was written and performed by Babak Rajabi and I'm your host, Leila Shams. And until next time, Khoda Hafez.